This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. Is it better to be feared or respected? I say, is it too much to ask for both? Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, James Hamrick, and as always, I am joined here with my co-host, Gabe Green. Uh, what's going on, Gabe? Literally joined here this time. Exactly. We are in the same room. We're in my very messy living room recording laptop to laptop. So uh, this has only been done once before. And last time it was over Justice League. So yeah, this, this should um, be a much more fun. Because going back and listening to that podcast, <laughs> I... <laughs> I know that I was so much more negative in my mind than what I said. That that podcast is just a series of me desperately trying to... We, st- we still had hope of the Snyder Cut at that point. Like, we know... like Because shortly after Batman v Superman, he announced, you know, I'm going to make my own cut. And like, oh, awesome. And we kind of thought we were going to get that, you know, the Snyder Cut announcement shortly after Justice League came out. And we're like, I didn't like that, but it can be fixed. It can be fixed. And... So now with in retrospect knowing that that was the film we got that that episode's kind of a, a hilarious little look at hopeless naivety but uh but this episode is going to be a lot more fun. Yeah, so uh, first I also want to apologize about how uh, irregular we've been over the last week. Um we've both been kind of busy and then obviously me traveling down here. So I think we we missed last week and so but this week we are starting with uh the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, which is a series that we are both very fond of, and I think is it was definitely the the kind of series that we love talking about on the show because it, it is so influential and has so it's kind of it's redefined what franchises are. It's just there's so much fascinating just behind the scenes. There's so much fascinating stuff to discuss, but the movies are also pretty good too. Yeah, so like Mission Impossible and Star Wars, this and and what Gabe just said, this is kind of what the the kind of series that my mind went to whenever we first started talking about franchise fatigue one where the behind the scenes stuff and you know the release stuff and the the cultural stuff is going to take not as much but like a a good portion of the conversation just because of how much there is and really talking about the way franchises shape culture so we are starting off with the first film about 2008's iron man uh, before we get into that, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please head over to iTunes and give us a rating and review. That would just be very helpful. Uh, five stars, preferably. And uh, if you want to follow us on Facebook, we are there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. So I asked on Facebook what our listeners thought about this film, and we got a couple responses. Uh, Jeff said, a wonderful start. Uh, Mitch said, great stuff. Uh, Hannah said, it's terrific. A lot of two-word answers. I was say, these are, these are little blurbs you're going to see on the DVD cover, I think. Uh, Paul said, still top five among the MCU films. Uh, Michael said, best phase one film. Samuel said, still in my top five, I think. And finally, Drew said, great start to a great franchise. While I like Don Cheadle as Rose, I kind of wonder how it would have been if Terrence Howard had, continu- had continued in the role. Also, I like the reference to Cap Shield connecting the two these two characters from the very beginning. I forget, where's the Shield in this one? Is it, is it, I thought it's an Iron Man two. Uh, the Shield shows up in a a deleted scene. Because do, doesn't he prop the his lasers his laser yeah. thing in the second yeah. one? But you see, you see the Shield in a in a deleted scene. Uh, both Iron Man one and Hulk had deleted scenes which featured little hints at Cap. 
Well, it's not even deleted in, in, in Hulk. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> then, uh, before we move to the main discussion, let's you know dive into some of the behind-the-scenes stories that uh, led up to this film. And before we dive into the main film, I want to give a, a brief history of the character of Iron Man. He was created in 1963 by writers Stan Lee and Larry Lieber, and artists Jack Kirby and Don Heck. The character was originally set in the Vietnam War era with a very similar origin story where he was kidnapped and had to build a suit to escape. Um, just It was just the Viet Cong holding him instead of Af- uh, Afghan terrorists. Stan Lee said he wanted to take a character that fully embodied the military-industrial complex that was so hated in the 60s and turn him into the hero. Um, he was also one of the founding members of Justice League. Uh, not you Justice mean... League. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Yeah, it's Justice League and the Avengers. He was one of the founding members of the Avengers, uh, which was happened later in 1963. Um, over the years, in, in addition to the comics, he's appeared in various animated shows. Um, and also, here's kind of a, an abridged history about Marvel's films leading up to the creation of Iron Man and the, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, so between the 70s and the 90s, Marvel went through a lot of financial difficulties, uh, which caused them to sell off the, the film option rights to a lot of their popular characters to various studios. Uh, this resulted in such films as Howard the Duck uh, in 1986 from classic. Lucasfilm. How was that the first Marvel <laughs> film? Like, we got all these characters. Spider-Man? No, let's do Howard the Duck. So excluding the direct-to-video Captain America and Pun- the Punisher films and the unreleased Fantastic Four film from the late 80s and early 90s, the next big film from a Marvel character was Blade from New Line Cinema in 1998. While it wasn't a massive hit... Uh, this this film is kind of considered to be a turning point for comic book films where after Schumacher did what he did to Batman, this was kind of the resurgence of, of these films being taken quote-unquote seriously. It's not, not exactly what film I would call serious, but it took I guess it took itself kind of seriously. And then after that, you had in 2000, Fox made Brian Singer's X-Men. That taken with Sony's 2002 Spider-Man from Sam Raimi kind of jump-started what is the modern superhero film genre, which is what uh, rules today. So along with the continuing X-Men series, Fox also put out two Fantastic Four films, along with adaptations of Daredevil and Elektra. And Sony, along with their with more Spider-Man sequels, made a Ghost Rider film and another one later on after the MCU. Um, and then in 2003, Universal tried their hand with Ang Lee's Hulk. And in 2004, Artisan Entertainment made a Punisher film. What was that? that was the, the Thomas Jane, John mm-hmm. Travolta one. So getting into the actual element of an Iron Man film, in 1990, Universal acquired the rights to the character. Horror director Stuart Gordon of the Reanimator fame was brought on to direct a low-budget film with the property, but nothing came of that. In 1996, Fox acquired the rights, and in 1997, Nicolas Cage expressed interest in playing Tony Stark, which would have been kind of amazing. Then in 1998, Tom Cruise spoke about possibly producing and starring in an Iron Man film. iRobot screenwriter Jeff Vintar wrote a script that was based on a concept from Stanley himself, and Quentin Tarantino was offered the job <laughs> of directing, which actually makes sense. Like, well, if Quentin Tarantino wrote it, like that kind of fast-talking quipping, that's just perfectly within uh, Iron Man's wheelhouse, or at least this version of Iron Man. And I think his appreciation for pop culture would have been like right on display in that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but nothing came of that, so that the rights went to New Line Cinema. Uh, jump forward to 2000, Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio from Pirates of the Caribbean, and Tim McCanley is best known for films like The Iron Giant and Secondhand Lions, was hired by New Line to write an Iron Man film. Then in 2001, uh, Joss Whedon was approached <laughs> to direct. Uh, then in 2004, Nick Cassavetes, best known for The Notebook, was attached to direct with scripts from Spider-Man 2 writers 
Alfred Goh and Mike Miller, and X-Men and X2 writer David Hayter. Uh, but that didn't happen as well, and then the rights went back to Marvel Studios. Then in 2005, Marvel began their own development for an Iron Man film, which they uh, planned to be their first film produced entirely independently in studio. Marvel actually had a lot of trouble getting writers for this film. Uh, this is both due to the, the fact that they were going to try to make this movie completely independently, and also the fact that this character was still fairly obscure and wasn't really ingrained in the wider public consciousness. Like A lot of the writers just didn't even know who or what he was. So one of the strategies they did to push public awareness was, and, and also to show that Iron Man wasn't just a robot was to create a series of advertorials, what they called them. They were essentially a series of CGI shorts uh, featuring Iron Man and Spider-Man battling evil robots. They were actually directed by Tim Miller, uh, who went on to direct another Marvel character, Deadpool, in his first movie. One funny thing about this, um, these shorts is that they end with Iron Man carrying a nuke into the, into the space, falling back to Earth, and Hulk jumping and catching him. So I don't know if that's actually from the comics or something that was created by uh, at that moment that uh, Joss Reed went on to kind of homage or rip off or whatever you want to say. Yeah, I mean, it's very years. clearly similar. Like, yeah, either it did happen in the comics or it was taken inspiration from there because it just it, it seems too similar to have not been intentional. So finally getting to the movie that we're actually going to talk about, John Favreau from such films as Elf and Zathura was hired to direct. He had previously worked with a Marvel executive, Avi Arad, uh, when he acted in Daredevil and wanted to work with him again. Have you, have you seen Daredevil? Who's, uh, I've seen it, but I cannot remember his role in it. I think he was... Uh... I think he was Daredevil's friend. <laughs> and that's about the extent of what I remember. <laughs> uh, it's been years since I've seen that movie. So uh, Favreau updated the Vietnam setting to Afghanistan because he didn't want to make a period piece. Uh, he also moved the setting from New York City to uh, Malibu because so many films were already uh, superhero films were already set in New York. Art Markham and Mark Holloway were hired to write the script. Children of Men writers Mark Fergus and Hawk Ospie were brought on to write a separate script, which was then combined with Markham and Holloway with Markham and Holloway's script by John August, the writer of Charlie's Angels and several of the uh, late Tim Burton movies. So they, they didn't want to use uh, Iron Man's arch nemesis, the Mandarin, as that villain was much more mystical. They, they didn't want the, they didn't want to just jump straight into fantasy. So it took a long time to actually pick a villain. C certain drafts had the Crimson Dynamo as the villain. Eventually, they decided to make Obadiah Stane, you know, slash Ironmonger the villain. And this was after Jeff Bridges had been cast as the character. Like, I don't even, like, what do you do with that character if he's not the villain? I have no idea. Like, that's, maybe it's a tease, you know, just setting him up for a potential villain in the sequel, which I, I guess I could have easily seen happening, but, um, yeah. How weird is that to have been like hired for the role and then told after you've been hired, hey, you're the main villain now? Honestly, that'd probably be pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, you got a good deal out of it. So, baked into this film was Kevin Feige's dream of an expanded cinematic universe. Um, so, while Marvel had sold off the rights to m many of their most popular characters, such as the X-Men, the Fantastic Four, and uh, Spider-Man, they still had the rights to the original Avengers team-up. So along with Iron Man, they put the Incredible Hulk into production with the plan of building up, you know, one film at a time to an epic crossover Avengers film in, you know, in far in the future. So when it came to casting the film, uh, obviously the, the biggest person to cast is going to be uh, Tony Stark. Favreau knew he wanted Robert Downey Jr. for the part, having loved him in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. But he ended up receiving a lot of pushback from the studio. 
Favreau personally felt that his past made him an appropriate choice for the role uh, and that Robert Downey Jr. would be, be able to play a character that he described as a likable asshole. Um, there were concerns about whether he was ready for a bigger role and whether parents uh, would even want to take their kids to see a film with him in it, according to Favreau. Um, I guess the pop culture's memory was a lot longer back then because like, his meltdowns were like in the mid to late 90s and he'd been kind of he'd been pretty much sober and working hard like pretty much throughout the entire 2000s at that point yeah so it is it is weird the the difference in culture back then but uh favreau was eventually able to convince them to at least allow robert downey jr to do a screen test and they really enjoyed what they saw from his screen uh, screen test and enjoyed his uh portrayal of the character uh unlike many castings uh whenever news leaked of robert downey jr being in talks it was actually met with near universal excitement and approval from fans. From all four people who knew Iron Man. Exactly. The whole fan club was out there with their signs saying, we approve. Prior to being cast, though, you mentioned a few of them, but there were people like Hugh Jackman, Timothy Oliphant, Nicolas Cage, and Tom Cruise, as you mentioned, and even Sam Rockwell uh, were all considered <laughs> for the role, and Rockwell actually auditioned for it. Uh, and, you know, he's he's not done with the MCU yet, though, so we'll talk about him later. Uh, for Obadiah Stane, Bridges, along with the rest of the cast, aside from Robert Downey Jr., actually pretty much fell in a place when it came to casting. Uh, Bridges was a fan of the comics as a boy and appreciated the script and the updated take on the character in the time. Uh, and for the role, he actually shaved his head and grew a beard. Uh, something he said he wanted look. to do. And Yeah, I mean, it's it's a... For Rhodey, Terrence Howard was cast, ironically enough, because it was thought he would be a good fit for a franchise and could return as War Machine. <laughs> Um, like Bridges, Howard was already familiar with the character and was a fan of his since he was a child, partly due to, uh, the character of Rhodey and more specifically War Machine, uh, being one of the few active black superheroes when he was growing up, uh, to prepare for the role. He had spent a lot of time observing military bases and eating and learning from, uh, military personnel. Eating military personnel? Well, eating with and learning from military personnel. For the role of Pepper Potts, Gwyneth Paltrow was cast. Uh, she wasn't, along with most of the world, was not super familiar with the character and was asked to be sent any relevant comics uh, for her to get to know her character. She said in an interview she liked, uh, she quote, liked the fact that there's a sexuality that's not blatant. And Favreau actually intended the relationship to feel akin to the comedies of the 40s, uh, something Paltrow described as innocent yet sexy. Um, for the rest of the cast... Uh, John Favreau cast himself as Happy Hogan and is like what probably my favorite side character of the whole series. Forehead of security. Yes, exactly. Well, he got promoted. He used to be forehead of security. Oh, yeah. Uh, for the character of Raza, a secondary villain, uh, Far- uh, Farhan Tahir was cast. Paul Bettany provides the voice of Jarvis. Uh, Agent Coulson would be played by Clark Gregg. And for a few cameos, Stanley obviously appears as Hugh Hefner. <laughs> Uh, Tom Morello uh, of Rage Against the Machine fame uh, plays the guitar for the score uh, also appears as a terrorist in a scene and Jim Cramer uh, appears as himself in a fake episode of Mad Money and then lastly the big cameo uh, in a post credit scene Samuel L. Jackson shows up as Nick Fury uh, and a fun little tidbit of information uh, the ultimate comics version of him was actually based completely off of his likeness so if you go out and like look at the ultimate avengers comic books they're just intentionally drawing samuel jackson so 
he was very much the right person for this role. So the practical suits uh, worn on set were built by the legendary makeup and special effects artist Stan Winston. Principal photography began in March of 2007 at the Hughes Company Sound Stages in L.A. Lone Pine and Olancha, California stood in for Afghanistan, and it, it looks pretty good for at least what I imagine yeah. Afghanistan looks like. Uh, the script wasn't completed when filming began. I mean, no wonder, considering how many guys they had going through. Um, they had most of the story and the action scenes laid out, uh, but the actors were pretty much improvising the dialogue on the day. Jeff Bridges was talking about how pretty much either in the evenings or in the mornings, him, uh, Robert Downey Jr. and uh, John Favreau and maybe a writer would be like get into a trailer together and just like go over all the dialogue and rewrite it before they would shoot it. Um, so at first, it kind of freaked him out, and then he realized, I'm on a $200 million uh, student film, and he just learned to enjoy it. So for the Iron Man suits, they used a mix of full practical suits and then partial suits with mocap uh, underneath. Uh, it was very difficult and tiring to work in the full suits uh, on filming. Um, so as the shoot went on, they used less and less of the practical suits and more uh, mocap on Downey just because he was getting kind of worn down. The practical Mark One uh, had actual flamethrowers on it. I've seen the footage of it, which that's just amazing. It's also that's just the coolest looking suit. Samuel Jackson's cameo as Nick Fury was actually shot in secret with a skeleton crew. Comic book writer Brian Michael Bendis wrote the dialogue in that scene. Um, and despite the secrecy, rumors still got out that uh, Nick Fury was going to be in the movie. So Feige removed the post-credit scenes in the preview screenings and the like the original critic screenings just to keep people guessing. So for the post-production, most of it was obviously folk, uh, pretty FX-heavy. Uh, Favreau was impressed with what ILM had recently done with At World's End and specifically Transformers, noting how photoreal the clanging and separating metal parts could look even in motion. And then for a lot of... That's funny. You know, Marvel at the time was in independent studios and as was and and Industrial Light and Magic would have been an independent effects house with Lucasfilm at least. And now they're both owned by Disney. I'll bring in all of the talent under one name, I guess. Um, For a lot of the action uh, after everything had been shot, uh, whenever it came to digitally enhancing a lot of the scenes, cameras that were actually flown in the air uh, to provide reference for the physics and wind resistance and frost effects to try to try to make the scenes of him, specifically with him in the jets and and him going up with Ironmonger at the end, look as realistic as possible. Uh, for the score, it was originally going to be composed by uh, John Debney, who had previously collaborated with Favreau on Elf and Zathura, but was unavailable. Thank goodness. Yeah, uh, yeah for sure. Composer Raman Jawadi, uh, who had been a fan of the character as a child since he was a superhero that actually didn't have any superpowers, uh, Jawa- uh, he ended up taking over the role. He actually pursued the position himself and wasn't hired until well into production. Uh, he began composing portions of the score after seeing the first trailer instead of waiting for a finished cut as he usually would with previous films. Fab- uh, Favreau said he considered Tony to be more of a rock star than a superhero uh, and wanted that reflected in the score. He asked uh, he asked that it be guitar-led with a really rock-heavy vibe to separate it from other films in the genre. So Eric Kaplan, along with Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine, as we said uh, just before, performed all of the guitar portions of the score. And then Jawadi recorded the band that they used um, for the whole thing uh, at remote control uh, while the full orchestra took place at Air Studios. Remote control being Hans Zimmer's production, com- production house or, or a music studio. 
Yeah, and due to time constraints and the final edit of the film changing consistently until the very last possible minute, uh, Jwadi actually brought in help from Zimmer and Remote Control Productions to to help finish some of the cues and the the final mixing. Uh, it's kind of funny they, they they start the film with ACDC and then the rest of the score sounds like it could be like riffs happening in an ACDC concert or something. Oddly enough, the score was very poorly received from critics, but personally, I really really enjoy it. The marketing for the film was extensive with huge toy deals, deals with car companies and Burger King. Uh, there was also a video game adaptation, comic tie-ins, and a 30-second Super Bowl promo. Uh, so they really rolled out the red carpet for this film trying to make a big splash. The, pre- the premiere was held at the Greater Union Theater at George Street, Sydney on April 14th, 2008. Uh, it was then released internationally on April 30th uh, and then in the U.S. on May 2nd. All right, so James, uh, do you remember your first time viewing this film, and kind of what's your relationship been with it, uh, with it been like over the years? Uh, so I do remember my very first time seeing it. Um, I'm trying to think of how old I would have been. It's eleven years ago, so I would have been thirteen when this came out, um, and I lived across the street from my older cousin, and he'd seen the trailer, and I had seen the trailer. We both thought it looked pretty cool, so we just made it, David. We went out and. Uh, uh, Ironically enough, we ate at Burger King before seeing the movie, uh, and then we went. Uh, I, we were actually late. We missed like the first ten minutes of the movie, but we both walked out of it absolutely loving it. And I think a big reason for that was decisions that they made, like not going straight into the Ten Rings and all the mystical stuff. There was just something about how real and grounded it felt that really stood itself, that made it stand apart from like other films in the genre. Uh, I really liked um, Tony Stark as a character. And there are interviews with Robert Downey Jr. where he's talking about he he actually had an office himself during like the writing of the movie. And, and he contributed a lot to just creating the personality. And he, he intentionally wanted him to not do what he quoted as saying, instantly become Dudley Do-Right after making the suit. He still wanted the personality mm. and the snarky nature of the character to remain. And so just... The, the humor of the film, the visuals, which were fantastic. It was just a really, really great overall experience that surprised both of us with how good it was. Um, were you familiar at all with the comics and the character beforehand? I was familiar with him only in name. I think my older brother had an Iron Man action figure, and that might have probably been like the, <laughs> the most I knew of him is I kind of knew what he looked like. Um, my relationship with the movie over the years has been really really positive um and i think i love the movie even more like every time i go back to it i'm reminded of how much i enjoy it as a film uh and that's not uh, a slight against the newer ones because i absolutely adore the mcu in general and a lot of my favorites are films later in the game but there's a there's just a kind of charm and, and not quaintness but just there's a different feeling that this film has being so early on uh I'm always just reminded of how much I enjoy seeing what this world looked like before superheroes were on the scene. And it just. It's a very small movie. It really is. And it is so focused on him as a character. Just. And it, unlike a lot of people, I love origins. I love seeing my heroes become the heroes they were. So just the focus on on the montages of him building the suit and go like his first little outings is as iron man i just i love everything about all of this um 
And so, yeah, it it still remains to me what I consider to be one of the better films of the genre. Yeah, so this was actually the second or possibly third MCU film that I saw. Uh, shortly after, like I, I knew absolutely nothing about the guy. I'd never heard of Iron Man before. Like the marketing push, and I saw pictures of him on like Seven Eleven cups and whatnot. Um, so I, I remember, like as a family, we sat down to watch it, and then when the five second sex scene, or more like five second kissing scene, came on, uh, Dad turned it off, and that was that. And so a little while, you know, a few years later, we watched Iron Man two, and I'm not, I'm not sure if we saw all the incredible Hulk before this. And if I, I know at least the first one or two times I saw the incredible Hulk, I had no idea it was part of the MCU or even that there was an MCU, like going into this film or even into Iron Man two, I had absolutely no conception that there was, they were building to something bigger. I don't think, I don't think it was until like Thor where I noticed, Hey, isn't that the guy from Iron Man two? Oh, that's kind of cool. It's almost like they're in the same world together. Uh, like, did you have any any kind of uh, idea of that going into this movie? Or so I, I was very much in the dark in what they were doing, and we, you know, this is pre all of the big action movies having these post credit scenes. So we left before it showed up, um, and me being the the young little nerd that I was, all became aware of the post credit scene, and I wasn't really. I had like all of the toys. I watched all the cartoons and, and you know, those Raimi Spider-Man movies were my very favorites. And so I, I still loved comic book genre, even without having read the, the comics. So I kind of knew who Fury was and I had heard of the Avengers. And so whenever I found out online that that's what they were doing, my excitement for Incredible Hulk and, and the sequel really, really went up. So I, I knew going into those that this was going to be this interconnected thing. But it wasn't until after I saw the first one. Yeah, I don't think I actually saw that Nick Fury post credit scene until after the Avengers. I'd seen the Avengers. I'm pretty sure that's the case. So but for me, actually finally getting around to seeing Iron Man, I actually I had to like borrow or quote unquote borrow my brother's disc and uh, watch it in secret. And this and uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s uh, Sherlock Holmes movie kind of became my go-to movies when I wanted to just watch a fun, like just a fun popcorn movie. Um, so, and the, the funny thing with this movie is I don't think my feelings on it have changed like at all. Like I, I've always really liked it and I've all, I've just maintained this steady liking. I, I don't feel like a lot of movies, like you, my, I, my appreciation becomes like deeper and more refined over the years or I realized that wasn't that good. This one, I, I, every time I watch it, I was like that was still just as good, but I don't, I don't feel myself like falling deeper and deeper in love with it on rewatches either. So yeah, that, that's kind of where I am going to this, to it now. I think the big, the big selling point for this movie, and the reason is why it's so loved, is the tone that John Favreau created. The whole, the whole just rock and roll, which is so much of that is in the music. Just watching sequences of Robert Downey Jr. pretend at science with the riffing guitar in the background. It's just so fun. And, you know, it's, we've seen creation montages all the time before, but there's something so rock and roll about it all. There's just a, there's a bravado and, and charming arrogance to it that just, it, it, it's an infectious movie to watch. Like not a lot happens. It's a very simple, you know, redemption story and then a man trying to redeem his legacy and there's just almost no real subplots or any of that, or just the, the relationships are very simple. Like it doesn't even blossom to a full romance between him and Pepper, but it's just like aggressively watchable. 
Yeah, and and like I said earlier, that's that's kind of what made us, me and Mike, like fall in love with it so much. The very first time we saw it was was this just surprisingly cool tone. Like we're going to see Iron Man, and you, you know, you watch the old shows and and everything, and it's an incredibly like nerdy character, which I mean, I was still going to be super into regardless. But the way it was able to just feel like, like you said, this, this rock vibe, this really cool quippy character and everything but also not becoming like uh like the crow where it's like this is rock and roll or super dark and gritty it's real it's quote-unquote realistic about it yeah while still having that vibe yeah and so i i think that's that's one of the big draws of the movie for me every time i go back to it it's just it is like i think incredibly rewatchable is like the best way to describe it it's just so fun like the dialogue is really snappy and yeah and like i said i'm always a good uh, i'm always a sucker for a good like montage and everything but there is something even more special about watching him you know in the cave with the guitar riff clanging on uh on the anvil with the the helmet and then back at his as his place and you've got the the song institutionalized play like this is this is just a a grown teenager almost with mm-hmm. the, you know with all of these things that is uh at his disposal but not in an annoying kind of dumb way that becomes a turnoff i i think the big thing for this movie is the confidence it displays looking back to i guess the the real superhero films before this like not like daredevil or ghost Rider, but like x-men or spider-man as fun as those movies are and like as self-assured as spider-man is there's still a sense that we want to get you to like this so that they really kind of ease you into the characters, into the world. They're, they're, they're very much trying to maintain just a kind of a seriousness about them where this film just kind of comes on screen with ACDC and like, this is who we are. You either like us or you don't. And there's there's just a confidence about it that is, is infectious, I think. Um, and I think that that's one of the things, you know, that that's that might not mean much nowadays where any superhero film doesn't where superhero films don't feel like they have to prove themselves anymore and they can kind of come on in like that but this film at the time i don't i think there was there was still a feeling that superhero films had to kind of they, they were there was still something to prove and this film came in with absolutely nothing to prove um you know from an independent uh direct you know a director coming from independent films an independent studio who could do whatever they wanted and you know R, R robert downey jr if you want to say rdj you're just kind of coming out of you know his fall from grace just as this this brilliant presence the screen presence that just demanded attention and you know didn't care what anyone else had had to think about it but again not in an annoying or contrived way it just it feels so natural and it is interesting just how well uh favreau handled the visuals and just the the action stuff and the overall film you know, coming from that independent background, you know, Zathura had a lot of special effects, but it was still fairly contained. Um, I think, like, visually, this film feels like a softer version of the, you know, mid-2000s oversaturated orange and teal look. Um, it's, like, slightly over, like, the lights are always kind of bright. The color grading, it, it, color grading falls into that orange and teal look, but it's much, much less pronounced than, say, a film like uh, Mission Impossible 3 we were talking about, that color grading. But it, 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 st- it still has that. There's a, there's a level of grit to it. You know, it's shot on film. You can tell um, they're not anymore. But it, it, there's just a, there's a level of kind of tangibility and grit to it, along with that. The 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 bright but not 
not like soft over comedy lighting, but like kind of bright, harsh lighting that gives it that 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 blockbuster vibe that I love from that era. Yeah, the the visuals themselves are are really great, and I mean, like the I kind of noticed maybe more so um, rewatching it going into uh, Endgame just how like it still maintains visual continuity with the series but it definitely has this kind of identity to itself especially since the newer ones look like modern blockbusters and this was it you could still see the residue of of uh you know the previous few years of action films on it in what i would consider a good way um but i think one of the best decisions was was going to a place like ilm for the the actual visuals of the film and and getting the coloring right and the thing i think even the shot that won me over to the movie was of the missile missing him and him turning around like annoyed with the tank and just <laughs> shooting the one thing and walking away uh um, the guitarist player the guitars are so the guitars are a character in this movie that are as important as robert downey jr yeah it's it all like that that shot from the trailer though and with the 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 charred you know blast marks across the suit there was just a level of tangibility to everything. Um, One thing is that I think the the problem with the Marvel, like you know, people talk about you know how Marvel films look so fake. I think is there's a confidence in CGI now where if they need to do a shot, like if there's a, a sequence that needs to be big and explosive, they'll just often make it an entirely CGI environment. And with these early MCU films, you know, I, I don't want to get into the whole oh CGI bad, but with the early MCU films, they act, they they would shoot live action plates of a lot of us. Like there's, there aren't a lot of shots in this film that stand out as entirely CGI. You can tell you know there are CGI elements, but there always feels like they were shot on location with real camera movement, and then they they just stuck the CGI aspects into the shot, and that that just gives it a level of tangibility. Even though there's a lot of CGI in this movie, and and the the Iron Man suit is almost flawless. You know you can t- see little holes here and there, but for the most part. You know, despite being 2008, there's you really don't you don't think about it as CGI. There's a tangibility to it that a, you know, the ILM was able to to achieve, you know, mixed with the the live action the live action suits they wore and the partial suits. It, it all just comes together to to just give a very tangible vision of this character. And another directorial choice, I like I've I haven't read a lot of Iron Man comics, but I don't know that I've ever seen the face cam visual in the comics. Is that a creation of the film? Do you know? I'm I'm pretty sure that that comes from the film, and, um, and that's just brilliant. The, the, just the way they can use the lights to as like visual storytelling because when everything's going bad, the lights are flashing. <laughs> you can see the, the like the cracks in the screen, and it it gives just a sense of that like you can see him doing things. You know, his eyes are flitting around all these statistics and you know numbers and. And Robert Downey Jr. is able to, he looks like he's doing a mil, running a million calculations at any given second, especially, and look, his, his face acting in those moments. Like, he never once phones it in. It would have been so easy just to have a guy kind of with a fairly blank stare just looking around saying his lines, but he's he's into it. He's doing it. And, and but it's just the face cam, it, it, it always allows us, like, this is not a robot. This is Tony Stark, our friend from this, you know, from the whole film we've watched. And just to see his joy in flight or anger at being shot at or just whatever, he's able. We're constantly cutting to his face. Is you know, this is the reason that you know they always try to knock the helmet off the hero in any given mo- any, you know superhero or medieval movie because you want to be with the character. And that 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 that, that face cam, as simple as it is, 
it's cool, it's stylish, but it's also very effective in helping us like him. Yeah, and it's also just, I mean, what an iconic piece of imagery now. You know, you look at it and you know exactly what you're looking at. Um, and one of the things that I love about it, it's kind of the same thing that we talked about um, in, I think, our Force Awakens chat, where the uh, it you, you get a lot of continuity um, in in the action when it's pulled out and you're just seeing everything outside of it. And then, you know, we're in the cockpit of the Falcon or a TIE fighter with them. And it feels like we're, we're not jumping from a CGI screen to them in a set. And the same thing goes here where it's like when we see him flying past these jets and holding onto the underbelly of the jet and everything, and then we're going into the mask, there's a level of continuity where it never feels uh, like there's a disconnect. Like he's, it never feels like he is sitting, like you said, phoning it in, just doing his lines. And then we pull out to him, like doing barrel rolls and all this stuff. And, you know, that's clearly not the, the same situation here. It all just feels like one seamless action scene. Yeah. Um, and I also want to talk about like Favreau's visual style. There's a, there's a quote from his cinematographer, Matthew Libatique. Um, he said, typically I take an aggressive tact to visual language, but on Iron Man, John Favreau's intention was to have the actors do the majority of the work and the camera do less of it. And normally I would, I wouldn't like, you know, we, we independent filmmakers sometimes come in and just, they just want to kind of just point the camera. Like, like it's, it almost sounds like a, the way comedies are directed, where they just kind of set the camera up and let the actors riff off each other. And there is like this, there's a, there's a looseness to the cinematography. There's very little, or at least there's very little obvious, like, uh, you know, compositions. It doesn't feel like it's always trying to go for the stylish thing. And yet, even in how simple the cinematography is most of the time, he is able to almost effortlessly, almost like accidentally capture all these iconic images just in moments. And it never, it never feels out of place with the, the generally kind of loose uh, filming style, but just like moments like him walking away from the tank or uh, just the, the, the shot when he, you know, deploy flaps and flies back between the, uh, the jets. And there's just, there's all these wonderful little moments that look, that become iconic without that feel again feel like without trying i'm sure a lot of thought went into the framing but it's 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 stylish without ever calling attention to itself that way yeah i i think the initial escape from the cave sequence is just incredible there are so many shots just specifically of him walking through tunnels and the the beat matching every footstep is beautiful and like that goes back into like just the idea that this whole movie just feels like like fist pumpingly cool um, whether we're rocking out to ACDC or, you know, we're in this gritty, nasty cave with tubes, you know, leading into our chest. It always feels like gritty and like it's it's easy to watch uh, and, and allow yourself to get invested to. That a shot of the camera swooping around the back of his head, like at the mouth of the cave, as all the bullets are ricocheting off and the camera like swoops behind his head. It's so freaking cool. I think one of my favorite shots is the the camera is just completely static it's set in the tunnel and there's like kind of a little bump in the tunnel where you can't see what's behind it and all the terrorists run past and then you just see the iron like the original iron man suit's head just slowly come above it as he's walking mm-hmm. it's just such a cool shot and <clears throat> the sequence has so many like that where it's just <clears throat> it doesn't feel like that that comic book panel kind of framing but like you said, there's these are still iconic and images. It, it feels like he's working hard. Each step is heavy, and you know, there, there, there's a temptation 
like when you want to be cool to make it faster, make it more stylish. But there's just something about showing the work that he has to put into every step and how lumbering and janky the suit is that just makes it so much cooler. And I think a lot of that's in the sound design, the music, uh, just the direct, you know, all of that goes back ultimately to Favreau for having this vision, um, despite, you know, being fairly simplistic in his visual style. Sound, the sound design in this movie is absolutely fantastic. I mean, just and the, they're, they're still using the, the suit sounds, you know, exactly like the, the thrusters from the hands, even just the him turning his head like that makes that little that low hum buzz kind of sound. And that's iconic. And they they can put emotion and tone into like like when he's like counting like when the when the, uh, the terrorists have the women and children at gunpoint and he's kind of looking around like you, the whole the whole thing's kind of coming down just by the, the sound of his head moving around. Yeah, and you know, I love uh, Infinity War and Endgame and everything, but nanotech is never going to be yes. close to as cool as just these metal plates clinking around with each other and making the sound. That that's one of the things, along with everything I said prior about like why I love revisiting this. But I just I love how practical it feels. Like he's building this cool suit and he's not getting saved by movie magic. It's just this is the stuff that he he made and it feels real. Mm. Which is kind of what movies around this like these superhero movies around this time uh, were kind of going for with the Nolan and even the Incredible Hulk felt more grounded. Um, but you yeah. know when done well, it's just, there's something so cool about it feeling convincing. Like we're watching this stuff that. As you know, despite knowing it's completely unbelievable, it's so easy to convince yourself it's believable. Yeah, nanotech has lost us the suiting up montages, which that the suiting up the the, the, the suit coming together set to uh, Ramin Jawadi's guitar is well, ne- like I I could watch that for hours. Like I've seen you know, I've seen it dozens of times, and every time you know, I'm getting goosebumps and getting pumped up. That first shot of him, like he's got his arms held out, and the the robotics have grabbed him, and they're putting on the the arm plating, and the helmet goes across his face, and then it does that last little close. Mm-hmm. That's awesome, and <laughs> and that needs to be protected and maintained. The the secret to nanotech needs to be lost. Yeah, and I, I think the storytelling in this film is, is pretty good. Um, I think it loses its way towards the end. I think you know the the consequence of making of turning jeff bridge's character into a villain in the last minute is felt in the film however like for the first you know hour hour and a half it it, it flows really nicely i think the, the in medias res opening where we you know we open in the present then flash back to the past what i think i think the importance of that sequence is knowing that tony stark is going to get his comeuppance that he's going to get hurt allows us to enjoy his his really nasty side in the beginning where he's just a jerk and being like just terrible to everyone. We can enjoy that in good conscience, knowing that it's going to end. Like I think if they had opened up at the, you know, at the award ceremony and at the casino and him, you know, hooking up with the reporter, I don't think we would have liked the character. I think showing him, showing him suffering in the beginning allow, gives us, you know, leave to, to enjoy that. And, you know, and then, getting to the comeuppance it, it, it all just kind of flows much better and we we like and care about the character more than we would have if he had been a douchebag when he went into the caves yeah just about talking about like the the storytelling and the way it flows completely the reason that this 
doesn't quite make my top five of the MCU is because I feel a disconnect, not a disconnect, but just there's there's a discernible drop in my enjoyment, I think, as we transition into the third act. But to just isolate the first two acts, I don't know if I could really come up with with any problems that wouldn't just that for me qualify as nitpicks. I really think the first two thirds of this film is pretty much perfect. Um, being the way we're introduced to his character, um, the I think the flashback is great. It, watching him be a jerk, and I, I never really thought about it, but I think that's true. Like we, it's kind of fun to see him be this jerk, and we don't have to feel guilty about it because we know he's going to learn his lesson. Um, but just, and again, a lot of this is coming from me, just as someone who loves origins. But watching him watching the creation of a new kind of hero with new kind of problems. You know, this is a guy who is feeling the consequences of, of his own actions um, and is making this mission as a hero more personal. And he's not going out there and fighting like, you know, street level criminals. And he's also not going out there and fighting, uh, you know, planet destroying aliens or anything. It's he's taking on like terrorist organizations. He, it, it feels so different and fresh and a lot of you know the the things he fought against in this kind of get lost uh, as the mcu moves along for a good reason just because you know a lot of the other characters it wouldn't make sense for them to deal with these kind of problems but for him it's just it feels so specific to this movie even now and something i just thought about even with him being a hero it's still feeding into his narcissism like who does he go after he goes after those who are staining his legacy. That's the whole thing. It's it's, it's just still about him. I, I, that's what I love about this character. Like I said, he he does not turn into Dudley Do Right. He is doing the right thing. You know, he's cleaning the world of the problems he made. But it's still him, <laughs> and I love that. It, it's, it's you know, it's, and he's had a wonderful arc across the films, and I, I just that that whole journey of someone who just doesn't care. You know thrown into a cave and face you know put face to face with his legacy and and uh, the character of Yince is, is is incredible because he has what 15 minutes of screen time at the most and yet at Iron Man's funeral you're still feeling his presence spoiler he he dies in Endgame oh. <laughs> uh yeah like he he's the impact he had on Tony Stark as a character is still here and it like he's like Uncle Ben. He's like, he's this 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 character that, that spoke directly into his soul, and and I love just the way he's played. Uh, Sean Taub or Taub, I'm not sure how you pronounce his, his last name. Really wonderful actor. It's like the attitude he comes to Tony Stark, where he just he doesn't care that he's the richest man in the world. Like he's not rude. He's not a jerk. He's not like instantly calling him out. You you warmonger. But he also doesn't show him any deference, or he's just a, a nice guy. He, he treats him like an equal, and there's just a. The love, the way the respect and relationship builds between them, even even at that short of a time, just feels so natural. And the way he's just he's able to speak directly to Tony Stark in a way that no one else could, um, and you know just the way when, when Tony Stark has to you know to lie to save his life, it just it's, it's a great relationship. And the things he has done for Tony are one of the main driving forces throughout the rest of the series. Yeah, and I I love the character of Vincent so much. Uh, one, just because the character itself I think is great, uh, and two, he is just giving a like a really, really great performance here. Um, 
in like the the low intensity since it's just them playing i i quote Jensen a weird amount like anytime mm-hmm. i'm playing a board game i'm and there's dice i'm always like oh good roll good roll like i just <laughs> he he takes lines and he makes them feel unique to his character without feeling like he's just like giving you know like overacting he just he feels like this real guy who's who's had an entire life prior to this and is able to use his own experience to speak into Tony's life. Uh, the- it, it, like, and the way his character ends, you know that this, for him, this is his final, this is his legacy. He wants Tony Stark to go out and save the world to be his own legacy. As he's, you know, challenging Tony to, to, to redeem himself. He's also like, this, this is his great task as well. Yeah. And it, it is weird, you know, his character is contained entirely within the first act. Not only just within the first film of the MCU, just with the exception of a, a really cool cameo in Iron Man 3, um, but even to, just being in such a small amount of one movie, his presence is, like you said, still felt even up to the end. Um, and so really just everything about the cave sequence, the visuals, Jensen and Tony's dynamic, which that's another thing, you know, it's, it, talking about how he only has like 15 minutes of screen time and yet they create such a realistic and enjoyable dynamic like there's a, di- a dynamic shared between tony and jensen their work ethic together their games their just their banter it's so specific to them and it feels so real and fleshed out and it's it's there in such a small amount but it never feels small it's probably the only real person that tony stark is able to relate with Maybe up until Capcom, like the only person who can who has no deference for him as Tony Stark, billionaire genius, uh, playboy philanthropist, or whatever. So I guess we should probably talk about uh, Robert Downey Jr. a little bit. I think you know, he's he deserves some of the credit, just a little bit for this film. Ah, uh, dude, what a performance! Um, you know, maybe this is just because Robert Downey Jr. is a nicer version of Tony Stark, um, and he kind of is. Like you, you listen, watch him in interviews. He he has that kind of motor mouth where he where he's just constantly he's just constantly thinking creating just being witty and you know just right from that opening scene in the truck we know who this guy is you know he's he's just constantly going and you looking into his eyes you know he's 100 miles away right now he's probably thinking about the next missile he's going to design he's like he, he has to keep his present mind occupied to keep from maybe just to keep himself sane but he never, he never, he so rarely feels present in conversations, which is just it's such a f- fast, maybe it's, maybe it's the drugs, who knows, <laughs> but it's just fascinating to watch because he doesn't, it so rarely feels like he is there. Like the scenes with Pepper Potts where it kind of comes down, you know, would that be all Mr. Stark? That would be all Miss Potts. Like he's there, but other scenes where he's just, he's just, he's just running. He's constantly, he, he, he looks like a computer and that's all just, it, it's not. And none of that is spoken. It's just there in the performance. Yeah, even in you know the script, I don't think you really see it. It, it is just kind of what what he brings to the character, and his his performance is fantastic and and really like dynamic. Because like you said, we've got these moments where he's firing on all cylinders. You know, his mind is everywhere it could possibly be. Like whenever he's um, confronted by a reporter where he's got an answer for everything not only an answer for everything uh he's also thinking about a, how a, he's gonna yeah smart well thought out well reasoned answer 
we'll also try to get her into bed. Exactly. Like, he's ready to seduce her on the tail end of a fully formed argument and rebuttal to, to what she is saying. It's While being funny and witty and charming at the same time. It's Exactly. There's so much going on there. And so it's like almost having to give, like, three different kinds of performances in single sentences or single exchanges of dialogue, and it's perfect. And then you... He, he also feels like he's... Like, he becomes that kind of character where he thinks, you know, like, what... What is the real Tony Stark like in this situation where he would just deal with, with Jensen or where he's lying to this guy? And he fe- he feels different from the way he, he's talking with the reporter, with everyone else, but different in the way that this this character would be, not like it's a different performance. And then in the more, like, quiet, nice scenes with, with him and Pepper. Uh, and something else that I really love about his performance and the movie in general is you know we talk about like it it feels really cool and uh and like it it takes itself just seriously enough but doesn't go the like the crow kind of or or spawn level of like yeah we're dark and cool um it also allows itself to just be sometimes like just a really sweet nice movie and uh one of one of my favorite scenes is uh the scene where pepper has to reconnect to the new reactor to him just their Mm -hmm. banter like talking about operation and everything and and it, 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 each of them is there is in such a vulnerable place. There's, there's the, like like she's freaking out because she has to stick her her hand into a, you know her boss's chest and like there's there's just no inhibitions between each other. It, it's like that you know that very chaste, sexy but not sexual romance. Yeah, and there, there's just something I love about the way they they completely tailor their delivery to each other. Like whenever she connects it and she's completely freaked out and he just kind of laughs and like oh that's it great job and he's just up and walking it's i i love those scenes when it just allows itself to be a quiet movie that cares about its characters like this movie loves its characters a lot Mm. and it's so much fun to experience a movie whenever whenever you love the characters in the movie loves them as well and treats them with respect and allows them to grow and dedicate scenes to just experiencing these little moments with them and it, even outside of just like character dynamics like with him and pepper just him experimenting the re- he has a he has a specific relationship and dynamic with the robot arm that like that's <laughs> tailored to that little gets robot. An arc. the robot arm gets an arc oh an arc reactor Ooh. there you go it's, it's meta it's a it's saying something but like it just the scenes and again I, I love scenes of them discovering their powers or, you know, their equipment and all this stuff. Just watching watching Robert Downey Jr. pretend to fly over his desks and over his cars and everything. Like, it's just cool, so much fun. A cool thing about that is, you know, normally harnesses are attached to, like, the the, the torso. They, they rigged up a harness where he's actually standing. Like, it, the, the pressure is actually on his feet and hands. So, it, mm. it looks real, really realistic, quote-unquote realistic. For whatever an arc reactor would look like, because the the weight the weight is the way it should be. Yeah, and and so all all of those those moments, like you said, the visuals, it feels real enough. Uh, it looks real. It sounds like the sound design is great, and it also just it's fun to watch. It's fun to watch him as a character who just feels so unique, and and so much of that, you know, is is uh, Downey Jr. And there's a reason he gets paid as much as he gets paid because he really does you know Favreau's direction is great the visuals are great but this movie kind of lives on him yeah and 
going back to Gwyneth Paltrow's pair of pots, like I, th- there's, there's a, a the romance in this is so well done. I don't know that everybody, maybe, maybe Captain America and Peggy, but like I don't think they've ever been able to fully, uh, you know, capture this, the kind of magic those two have together. And I love that it's not even a romance by the end of this film. You know, the, the, like you can tell she obviously deeply cares about him, but she also has absolutely no illusions about what he is. And so she's also kind of keeping him at arm's length. She knows that he's he, he's not remotely ready to be a, you know, a decent a, a romantic partner, and just. Uh, but I love the way she will, you know, she will take her jabs. Her first introduction, you know, I do anything and everything Mr. Stark requires, including taking out the trash. Will that be all? <laughs> she's just, she's great. Oh, you know, tears of joy. I hate job hunting. Where both of them know they have a connection. And the scene at the party where they're, they're like desperately trying to figure out, should we allow this to become something more than professional, but neither is able or willing to open up and acknowledge it. At the, at the, and then but just the moments where it kind of all comes away, like where, where you know, she, she's constantly trying to get him, you know, to sign this, just he want to buy the Picasso. But then when, when he finally does pay attention to it, and he's just like, you know, will that be all Mr. Stark? That will be on this spot. Like I love, you know, we we have that line in the, in the middle after you know after they had that wonderful moment with, with the operation, and then that's at the end where he's trying to like he he's trying to acknowledge the room. He's like, you know, you remember you left me on the roof, okay? <laughs> we're we're gonna keep this professional for a little while longer. Um, so yeah, it's just a it's a great little you know forties fifties uh, you know, will they won't they kind of thing. Yeah, and I, again, this kind of goes back to just how like how much I love a movie whenever it allows itself to be quiet and have these little moments. They have so many that, you know, with, with their dance where, where he's, you know, she's talking about his birthday or her birthday <laughs> and he didn't realize it, it was, uh, it had come already and she had already bought her dress. You know, it's like, Oh, get something nice on me. Like, it's your birthday. I, I knew that already. <laughs> give, yourself, give yourself something nice for me. I already did. Yeah. It's, it's their, their back and forth is so fun. And, and like, they, like, uh, like they said before, like there's, there's real romance there. It's 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 underlying all of their interactions, but it's it's so innocent, you know, which is weird. And I think that's kind of how you you're able to tell just how serious this is as opposed to everything else, because he really is just like this sleazy playboy with everyone else, and the way he is with her, it's so clear that there's something else going on. And so that's another thing that I just find really impressive. Is I, I, I love that she has the self respect to not you know jump in his arms instantly. Yeah, like she's, despite the fact that I think you can tell that there's definitely feelings on her part, she's romantically kind of like keeping him at arm's distance um, with those reminders. And you're like, oh, you mean the night where you left me upstairs by myself? Uh, and so, and again, and again, there's there's no last kiss. There's There's nothing. It's just, we know where it's going to head. But it's allowing itself to get there naturally. It's not what, what I think I love about that, or I, one of the things I love about that is the fact that they don't finalize this romance. And this kind of proves that they're not treating it like another box to tick. You know, we the the you know we need a villain, we need his origin and a montage, we need a love interest, we need all of these other things. A you know, kiss all at of the these end, exactly after all, saving your life. All of these these things that are purely functional, these tropes. The fact that they don't feel the need to establish that to me is proof that they they care. It's proof that Tony Stark has a heart, uh, but it's all it's it's proof that that they care about this relationship and they want to take it somewhere and they care about the character. She's not there 
just so he has someone to kiss at the end that you don't feel gross for like cheering. You know, if it was if it was any of the other girls and he was like, okay, wow, he's still a playboy. And like, well, we need we need to have him kiss somebody that the audience can cheer for and feel good about. It's Hashtag like, no. character development, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, look, they grew and now they love each other. It's It feels so much more real and it, it's just more respectful to the character because it, it acknowledges that she's a character outside of of the the superhero romance kind of thing and it's great franchise storytelling shows they're here for the long haul and it's not like oh we only told half a story like there's a definite you know beginning middle and end to his relationship with her but they're they're going somewhere else with it eventually um it's just really really good confident franchise storytelling um another character i want to talk about is uh roadie played by terrence howard um not for long though I, I like Terrence Howard a lot. He's nothing like... We'll talk about how he compares to uh, Don Cheadle in Iron Man 2. But here, I th- there's like a whininess to his performance that I kind of love. Where, like, he they're friends. He genuinely likes and cares about Tony Stark. But he is also, like, this far from punching him every scene together. He's like, just, why are you the way you are? And he's he, like... There's something kind of pathetic and whiny about him that's just so fun to watch. Um, that I, I don't that Don Shield doesn't bring. I think that's unique to Terrence Howard. And, and there's just great, you know, banter. You know, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. This is the funny. The humdrumpies back there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not gonna drink. I'm not gonna drink. And they'll catch the, the stripper pole and the the you know, the, uh, the champagne and all that. It's just uh the way that Tony's able to play him along by like just constantly jabbing at him and then at the last moment kind of pulling back and mollifying him and going back to jabbing at him again it's it's great this is just a it's just a fun relationship they have together that it, i think is i i would have been very happy if he like i don't know how like Sheetal sells the military aspect i think just the the, the very self confident he's a he's a warrior aspect but I, I do feel there's something a bit more personal and emotionally emotionally grounded with Sheetal. I mean, with, 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 with Howard. So I think I think I feel the same level of emotional investment between both actors. And again, we'll, we'll talk about Sheetal uh, when we get to those films. But what I will say for Howard is I've always looked at these guys like they were high school or, or college, you know, best friends. And one grew up to be an eccentric billionaire playboy philanthropist, and the other guy went straight laced and joined the military and everything. But like, but also he owes his career to Tony Stark because he's the liaison between the military. So he, yeah, he can't he can't truly stand up to him. And and even beyond just like his, the professional need for like a, a working relationship, it also it feels like even in his maturing, he was never really able to grow grow you know, mature past his desire for a friendship with him. Like, it still feels real. Like, there's a bond. Like, whenever he get, whenever he saves him and he's like, how's the fun V uh, with the helicopter? Like, Next just, time you ride with me. Which is really... He, he, he delivers the hell out of that line. Yeah, and uh, I love the transition into him drinking and just his whole spiel he's giving to him. He's like, whenever I wake up and I put on that uniform, you know what I say? Like, <laughs> he feels so dedicated to to his job and to the relationships he has like it, it there does feel like there's a deep connection between he and tony and and this is a real person who has a real past and everything and um and i kind of i've always kind of liked that that whiny character when there's res- a lot of restraint on the wine like it's he's not there just complaining like oh tony stop like 
but he's there to keep him in check. He's there to like rein in all of the the superhero fantasy kind of stuff and and try to try to control the situation as best he can, but in a way that still manages to be really likable. Yeah, another great cut is you know what do I tell the press? You know training exercise isn't that the usual BS? No one's going to believe that. An unfortunate training <laughs> exercise. Uh, yeah, it's uh, I guess the final character that we want to talk about. Uh, is you know Jeff Bridges as Obadiah Stane, and this probably leads into what I think is both of our main complaints with this film. Uh, first off, Jeff Bridges is great. Whether he's playing the devoted, loyal, possibly morally dubious <laughs> executive that's kind of held Tony's hand over the last decade, or the very creepy, evil, domineering businessman, like he's great as both. He's just fun to watch. Um, um, where he's like, you know, it's a dead end, right? Am I right? We haven't had a breakthrough in arc, you know, arc reactor technology for thirty years, and just like looking at it, like he's he's constantly he's he knows how to he knows how to handle Tony, or at least he did. And there's there's a history to their relationship, and like once he turns bad, it's believable. I I, I kind of almost wish he stayed in that in that range and of you know morally dubious yet let loyal to the character. And then once it, once he turns into a villain, even though he's fun, I, actually no, he's great. While it's still just his presence, when he's him, him and Pepper Potts. Oh, in that the scene office is fantastic! Is great. Where every line can have two meanings. You don't know how much he knows, or and he doesn't know how much she knows. That they're both playing each other is, is fantastic. Or the scene where he goes and takes Tony's heart, um, the Dutch angle as he oh. stands over him is beautiful. Um, he just he has a great presence as a performer. Where he just can be intimidating while doing almost nothing. It's the beard and the bald head. It's, it's freaking scary. And the giant freaking cigar and the Segway. <laughs> I think it's one of the things that makes the ending a little weak. Once he just turns into the monologuing, yelling villain, he's just... I think he loses some of that charm and intensity. And also, I think just this film, the way it's structured, either needed him to be the villain from the beginning. I, I honestly think the terrorists should have been the villains from the beginning. Because either they should have disappeared the moment that he flew out of that cave or and never come back into the story, or they should have been the main villains. And the story is structured where they could be the main villains. They have the Ironmonger suit. They could have, you know, developed if they want to have you know the, 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 the Iron Man's clash against each other, they could have, you know, developed their own suit and then the ending could have been kind of a you know, a clash with a terrorist strike back at Tony Stark or something. But just the way they have this presence, and the way uh, the I forget the the, ter- the main terrorist guys Raza Raza, where the way he's built up throughout the entire film, and then like at the beginning of the third act, he disappears, and then, um, then, Stain is the villain. Like there doesn't feel like a real connecting through line between the characters. It just kind of you kind of just feel like why was why was he here the entire film if he's just gonna just disappear all at once? And then we don't really have any motivation for Stain, like. I assume he I mean, he wants the company, but like, there's there's so little outside that, and his actions in the third act don't line up with a conniving businessman who's trying to get a company. Like, what does clanging around in a giant metal suit in downtown L.A. What does that have to do with you know gaining the company and revenge or and you know and disposing of Tony Stark? It's just it feels like it ha- it turns into we have to have a giant fight. So I guess. Our 
up, you know, previously crafty businessman has to go crazy inexplicably and so we can clang around. And it's very well done. Like that's a it's a it's a fun sequence. It's very well shot. It's very, the motions are very clear, easy to follow. The effects are fantastic. I but, like that they're able to make his suit feel very specific to it. Like it's its takeoff sound is so different from Tony's and mm-hmm. Like the suit itself feels cool, the way it fights feel cool, but yeah. And there's also a great cool callbacks. You know, how do you solve the icing problem? Icing problem? <laughs> Might want to look into it. But you know, it's it's it, it you know it's not like entirely disconnected from the film, but it doesn't. There's there's no real emotional weight to it because the character because there's been so little set up for animosity between the two characters. Yeah, uh, my biggest problems come from the way they, the way they ultimately handle Raza and the way they handle Stain. Where there's a lot of like really curious things to me about what they do with Raza, where you think he's dead, and then turns out he's alive, and they reveal, you know, like oh he's back, but he's got this scar. It's like one, what a, it's such a weird shot to show, like oh look he's back, but he's got this scar now, and now he's angry. It's like. You're going to kill him, like, the next scene after introducing, like, the new cool, unique Scar and the fact that he's still alive. It's like, he didn't even have to be alive. It could have just gone to, like, the next in command. Him being alive after the cave is so inconsequential because Tony never, for for all intents and purposes, he died in the cave for Tony. He never sees him again. And so, to bring him back only for the sake of handing the Ironmonger stuff over to Stane... It's just a weird character choice. And then the biggest problem is is with Stan, where, again, I have no problems with the first two acts. And that includes me having no problems with Stan. I love Jeff Bridges. Uh, I love his character here. I think his relationship with Tony is fantastic. There is a real sense of history between the two. One of my favorite moments is when he calls him and, and he's in bed and is like, hey, way to go. Like, it feels like a genuine, like, kind of mentor, you know, like, uncle character. Like, he he was essentially an uncle to Tony is exactly what it feels like to me. Um, and I just, I really, really like that. And, and to your point, like, what you're saying, it feels, the animosity between the two feels fake uh, when it comes to the end. Not only because it's like, I can be convinced that, you know, he's played the part and had to deal with this arrogant a-hole and he's getting fed up with it. But he just, as a character, feels different. Where at the end he's like, hold still, you little prick. It's like, what? This is not Obadiah State because we've seen him interacting with people outside of Tony as well. It's, it doesn't feel like this is this is who he is. And again, another of the big problems is, is what you said where the motivations just feel so contrived where it's like i can i can buy that he's wanting the business and you know that he paid the terrorists and all this and that but like wouldn't that have been a good like end credits reveal that's exactly what i was thinking that's what i was going to say and i didn't even i wasn't even thinking about it until uh realizing that he wasn't going to die initially it would have been great. And then I, I thought about it even more whenever you were saying that you kind of wish that the terrorists were the villains the whole time. That would have been a great, like, last shot discovering um, the message of them saying, you, pay- you didn't tell us you were paying us to get Tony Stark. The revelation that he's a villain. And that just imagine what they could have done with the sequel where, like, first scene with him in it, we know and Tony doesn't, maybe. And, like... It, it could have gone so many more interesting ways and that would have given them another movie like now that we were interested or now that we're 
invested in their relationship and it feels real and then you got the twist there then you have an additional movie to try to like start planting these seeds of like animosity between the two instead of just going okay well now you're back i'm gonna put on a big suit and punch you on a highway like it's just it there really is a disconnect to me between this really smart calculating businessman who's now hopping into this big suit and he's just out there in la fighting it's it's what if he had been aldrich killian in Iron Man 3, like he had been building AIM on the side. Yeah, because then you still get the whole, like, they, they could have had a reveal of maybe Tony in some way screwing him over and Stan kind of convincing him, oh, it's it's no big deal, we're still cool. And then you've got, you've planted your seeds for the animosity. I think that could have worked well. Yeah. So, like, the, 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 the finale is not bad. It's fun, it's good action, but it, it's just, the, the previous film has been so driven by Tony Stark desperately trying to redeem his legacy saving the you know i want to protect the people i put in harm's way and that's really not a factor in the end so it, it feels disconnected our last, last one is uh paul bettany is jarvis who's just he has this perfect silky smooth voice you know a little ostentatious don't you think oh what was i thinking you're usually so discreet <laughs> you know you throw a little hot rod right in there yes that should help you keep a low profile <laughs> yeah i think the greatest thing about jarvis is that we get Paul Bettany for so many of these films because like his his voice is perfect. He's usually always like, if not the best, one of the best things of any movie he's in. And somehow in a movie where he's only like this distant robotic voice, he still manages to just be an amazing part of the movie. As always, uh, a pleasure watching you work. And And going back to what we were talking about with Tony, like... Robert Downey Jr. invests himself in the role so much to where like it feels like he just is Tony that like every every relationship and dynamic he has with everyone feels like a specific thing and that goes for Jarvis like and the dunce cap robot yeah like these feel like actual dynamics with real people that you'd have like he speaks with Jarvis in a way he doesn't with anyone else maybe even more so with Pepper he's completely like he says what's on his mind at Jarvis. Like, this is him in work mode where he's not having to worry about being cool or having a snarky retort all the time. Like, it's just him talking with Jarvis. And he doesn't have to feel bad because Jarvis gives as good as, he, as good as he gets. Yeah. I, I think we've pretty well covered this film. Let's now move into our you know final star rating. Uh, James, what do you give this out of five stars? Uh, I think I give it a very, very solid, firm four out of five. Uh, really, like... Leaning towards four and a half, um, but maybe just short. And the reason it's so hard to not give it that is because, like I said, before it runs into the problems that I think it has, the first two thirds of this movie is, in my opinion, perfect. Like, I just can't bring myself to find a flaw with any of it. And I love the characters so much. I love how much the movie loves its characters. The tone, the score, the visuals, it's all just so engaging. And it has a really good final scene. (laughs) Yeah, the the last scene is incredible. The the last line, uh, I think it, it it really does come down to the third act and the fact. I, there's really not a lot of dramatic or emotional weight. I at that point, once the villain, once he goes full villain, I I don't care about them being at odds anymore, um, just because it wasn't really set up. So I'm not super emotionally invested for your big finale. So I do think that. That brings it down a bit, but like I said, it's an incredibly solid four out of five. 
Yeah, speaking of that, Annie, I love that the whole MCU has just, aside from like Spider-Man, which they've done away with the whole secret identity, you know, him standing up there saying, I am Iron Man. It's just all of that, that the whole baggage, you know, the whole you lied to me stuff that kind of is kind of the staple of, you know, I have to hide my secret identity to protect those I love. That's just not present for the majority of the MCU characters. And it's a very, it's a very bold choice that I think leads you know, to, it, it, it allows you to avoid a lot of the, the more cliched. And they, there's nothing wrong with tropes. They, they can be done well. And they've been done well. But it's just a, you know, a very it's, – it's Marvel, the MCU, staking its claim to, this, to its own style of storytelling. Um, so yeah, same as you, I am at a very, very solid sturdy four stars. Uh, it's just a fun movie. And even when it gets less interesting, it's still fun to watch. And it ends with a bang. It's just it, – it, it came in this incredibly confident movie that, you know – set up this 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 new series but honestly this film's claim to fame is not in that oh it's the first mcu film is that it's just a great movie if after he says i am iron man and you hear iron maiden start up like you're not fully invested for whatever they've got next then you're not human because it's just it's such a great time and the the brilliance of that post-credit scene where this this movie doesn't need to start the mcu but that promise of more, just, I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers Initiative, which is just, we're living in, in the fruits of that. So moving into the reception, uh, domestically it earned $388 million with, with $266 million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of $585 million on its $140 million budget. You know, that's not what, you, that's, that's not what the MCU does these days. It seems kind of low, but, you know, for the time, that's, a, that's very successful, especially with that high of a domestic take. Um, which is interesting now. You know, nowadays, the, the, the worldwide China is where, we, where most of the money comes in, but 388 million, that's like over, over 100 more million more domestically. You know, times were really different back then. Um, so it's the second highest grossing film of 2008 domestically uh, after The Dark Knight, but only the eighth worldwide that year. Uh, top runners that year being The Dark Knight, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and Kung Fu Panda. I was really surprised that it actually beat Kingdom of the Crystal Skull domestically. Uh, and again, but I was also surprised that worldwide it was only eighth, just because of how big it it blew up. But I, I guess being so specific to like, in a way specific to like American politics and you know, uh, our relationship with Afghanistan and and that, that's something interesting. This is a post post nine eleven movie, where it's obviously living in a post nine eleven world because you know we're in Afghanistan terrorists, but it doesn't have the angst of post nine eleven. It's a, we're allowed to have fun with terrorists again. What's crazy, I I would say that y'all people listening should look up um, interviews with Kevin Feige uh, where he talks about the way he portrays the military and portrays the, the violence and just the whole political aspect. It was such a different time back then, this idea of just like being, finding something that everybody can enjoy where for... For people on either side of the political aisle, the the military is presented just empathetic enough with characters that aren't sleazebags. But then you've got the other, you've got ideas of of warmongering and and war profiteering and and an unnecessary industrial or military industrial complex and, and these different things going on to where it it really feels like it's it's not intending on offending anybody, but not in this like kind of like oh let's tiptoe around everything. It's just. The movie feels free to be what it is. Because it's about Tony Stark. It's not yeah. about 
like the, the, the MCU has moved into much more of our politics, but it didn't need it here. Yeah. So as far as the critical reception, um, it was a huge hit with audiences and critics alike. It holds a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 79 on Metacritic. Robert Downey Jr.'s performance uh, received like universal acclaim. Every review just like this guy is amazing, and <laughs> you know he's acted in what like four <laughs> non-Iron Man <laughs> roles in the last decade and the, the film's fun confident tone is you know also got a lot of praise it's just a, it's a fun movie to watch and everyone enjoyed it while it's also it's intelligent and it has a you know a very well well-drawn human story beneath all the shine and bluster so from I, I wasn't really at all invested in the like the online film community so i really but even me for myself i knew a lot of people who just liked it I wasn't really aware of like what what did like film buffs think about. It. I was just like going around among friends. Like people people liked this movie. It just seemed like it it wasn't and it wasn't like a phenomenon. Like oh, Iron Man, the new thing. It wasn't like when the Avengers came out, but it was it was a movie people liked. They watched it, and you know, the world went on. And then it, it, its whole legacy has been shifted. But now throwing it over to you, James. What, what do you see as this film's legacy? Um. Well, I mean. I think we've got the MCU in its entirety as as its legacy. You know, we, you know, Endgame is proof of that. You know, when we go into the end credits and we we've got these little title cards for all the original characters and and seeing it on the big screen when it showed. I mean, everybody's happy and cheering for all of them, but whenever it shows Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark and you've got the picture of him from the first one, like my audience just blew up and then you've got that little sound bite at the at the very end of him hammering on that an- anvil it's like there's there's an understanding even with this send-off with bringing back the proof tony stark has a heart like even 22 films removed there is very clear understanding of where this series started you know, as big as it's gotten with aliens and, you know, several planets and several different races and all of this other crazy stuff, it still knows that it has its roots firmly grounded in this movie and it hasn't tried to hide that or or make you think that the MCU has become bigger and better than that ever could have been. It's It feels like the series is really, really proud of that movie. Um, and, and in addition to just the MCU... It's you said at the beginning. It's kind of redefined the blockbuster and um, franchises in general, and that's you know a lot of that's the MCU itself. And I would say you know maybe we're gonna have to give also a lot of that credit, credit probably most of the credit of just franchises and stuff to to what the Avengers did because that kind of kicked off the idea of shared universes as we see it now. But again, even with the Avengers, you, we've got all of this traced back to here. And it's still really well loved. I think I would probably say, I think it might be loved even more now than it was when it first came out. And it came out with a lot of love. Yeah, I feel like it's, it's the only Phase One solo film that hasn't had major reevaluations over the years. Like, all Incredible Hulk, Iron Man Two, Thor, Captain America—they've all had ups and downs, and you know, like very huge shifts in whether becoming slowly more negative or or more positive. This one, it came out well liked. It's still well liked. Every, like everyone likes Iron Man. Yeah, and you still have a lot of people. I mean, I'm like I said, I'm really close to putting it in my top five. It's just short of that. But you've got a lot of people who say it's in their top. You've got a lot of people who have it still as their number one. Uh, and there are people who still claim it's just you know 
it it needs to be in discussions and like best of the genre. And so even to this day, I, I don't see this film losing any of the esteem it has now. It's it's going to be decades from now, it'll be an action classic the way we look at, at movies from like, you know, the greats of decades ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, as far as awards, it, it got two Academy Award nominations, one for Best Visual Effects and one for Best Sound Editing. But it lost to The Curious Case of Benjamin Button and The Dark Knight. All right. So that was our review of Iron Man. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, again, I'd like to ask you guys to please head over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave a rating review. That would be very helpful. If you want to follow us on Facebook and give feedback, that could be right on this show. We are there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. Uh, If you want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, we are there as at FranchisedPod. And if you want to find our older episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? So you can follow me mainly on Letterboxd. I'm there as JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. I've got some, I've moved into just shorter reviews, giving my quick thoughts on movies. The The past few weeks I've been, now that school is over, been a lot more intentional in watching and, and talking about film. So that's where you can find a, a lot of that. Uh, and then on Facebook, you should join us over at uh, The Outer Rim, a Star Wars group. You and I are both admins, along with a couple of our friends there. Um, and there we, we just try to keep positive conversation about Star Wars as we lead into Rise of a Skywalker. And I'm also on Letterboxd, and there's Gabriel Green. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Gabe A. Green, and I am on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. Um, so I'm not sh- entirely sure what's going to be next week, uh, but the next official Franchise Fatigue episode will be on The Incredible Hulk, uh, either next week or the week after, depending on how, that, all how, on how all that works out. Dude, we should really, we really should record in person more. Yeah, flow means a lot. You just got to move down here to uh, Texas so we can keep this in-person flow going. Yeah, or you can go to Arizona. I think mm. that'll work too. Yeah, probably not though. Yeah, you don't. Too hot. Nobody wants to go to Arizona. <laughs> All right. Um, so until next week, with whatever we talk about, we will see you in the sequel. I am Iron Man. <laughs>